Welcome, everybody, to episode 25 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn. I'm here again with my comrade in arms, Bill Rogio. Bill, say hi. Hi, everyone. We are not talking about Afghanistan at the bulk of this episode this week. That's the good news uh, for us. So we're not getting pulled back in, although there's stuff that we want to comment on. We're going to talk instead about uh, recent events in Mali and West Africa. And our colleague, Caleb Weiss, who's been writing for the Long Word Journal for several years now. Caleb, I had to look up how long you've been writing for us. I think it's been since, like, 2014. Yeah, it's been six years, which is hard to believe. That is incredible. Well, Caleb's going to join us this week because he's a, a, a fellow nerd who's done a deep dive on events in West Africa and elsewhere in the jihadi scene. And he's written a lot of great stuff recently, and we thought we'd bring him on and talk about what's going on. Um, before I do that, before we dive into the details, uh, I, Phil hasn't even asked me to do this. Phil Hexeth, our IT uh, guru, our podcast guru hasn't asked me to do this, but I'm going to remember that he asked me to do this several times in the past. If you can go and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and drive, this will help drive people, new listeners to the show. We'd much appreciate that. We've gotten a, a ton of great feedback so far. We definitely have uh, a bunch of expectations for expanding what we do in the future, hopefully doing some video so you can see Bill and, uh, Bill and myself. Bill's incredibly sexy. If you see him in person, you'd love to see him on, on video. Oh, yeah. Bill, there's not going to be any footage under the covers, Bill. Though, however, none, I, I, none, no. Footage I know you like that. I know you love that that uh, that phrase. But uh, we're going to be expanding in various ways going forward. Uh, try and line up new guests, uh, different merchandise. We've teased merchandise a bunch of times. We got a bunch of stuff coming. But if you can go and hit us up with a five star review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be great. Uh, we have a lot of different uh, topic areas we're going to cover going forward. I'm still preparing an, uh, an episode, Bill, on Osama Bin Laden's files. I'd like to maybe you and I can cut a podcast, a shorter podcast on that for the anniversary of 9-11 this year if Absolutely. we have time. Something like that. Just talk a little bit about some of the myths that are out there about what Bin Laden was doing at the time of his death and how we fought to get those files released. We're going to talk a little bit about those files that are going to be interspersed again in this episode because it has to do with uh, Al-Qaeda's presence in Mali and the surrounding countries and how that was, in fact and is in fact tied to Al-Qaeda senior leadership, contrary to what some claim. Um, but let's kick it off with what's going on in, in terms of the recent events in, in, in just the last couple of weeks. So on August 18th, there was a coup in Mali. This is the second coup now where that uh, leader's been overthrown. Um, this was, I think it was mostly a bloodless coup build, your question as we were prepping for the show. I think, you know, it basically uh, the president of Mali, Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, uh, announced his resignation on national television after uh, Malian soldiers decided to basically oust him. Uh, this is thrown into flux sort of the U.S. and French counterterrorism mission. It brings up all sorts of new questions about what's going to happen in the country and the surrounding region. Uh, but as I said, this is the second sort of noteworthy um, time a coup like this has happened, or the second time it's noteworthy that a coup has happened like this, because the first time was in 2012, and that really changed the jihadi scene in the country and in the region. Um, we know that Al-Qaeda at the time moved to take advantage of, of the aftermath of the coup. We have correspondence that was recovered by Rukmini Kalamaki, then of the Associated Press, now of the New York Times, which showed that uh, AQAM was discussing the ways they could possibly stand up an Islamic Emirate in the country. They did move to do that. They were working with Ansar Dean as sort of their local front uh, to do that. And they had sort of different schemes in mind in which, in which ways AQIM could work with their local sort of face on their operation. Um, and so we know that this has been something that Al-Qaeda has been eyeing for a long time. And of course, that correspondence, uh, one of the authors of that correspondence was Abdul Malik Drakdel, the longtime emir of AQIM, who was killed on, a June, in, on June 3rd in a counterterrorism operation led by the French with U.S. assistance. And as I said, you know, we talked a little, I said, I mentioned, I teased that Osama Bin Laden's files are always going to make a cameo or going to make a cameo in this episode. And here's why. 
the Bin Laden files show that Drukdel and his men were in regular, regularly consulting with al-Qaeda senior leadership, including Bin Laden. Those files show that AQIM consulted AQ senior leadership on hostages and ransoms that they were negotiating, um, including putting pressure on the French government. Uh, at that time, Bin Laden wanted to use the hostages to pressure the French out of Afghanistan. Um, AQM consulted al-Qaeda senior leadership on the composition of the Shura Council. Um, there's a, a truce that the AQIM, this is al-Qaeda Islamic Maghreb, uh, signed a truce or agreed to a truce with the government of Mauritania. That was something that AQ senior leadership signed off on and said it was totally permissible from the, according to their version of Islamic law. And uh, AQIM also consulted al-Qaeda senior leadership on the group's charter and other issues. So this is, this is one of those things where you know, in the counterterrorism field, uh, Bill, you remember we went through this years ago where AQIM supposedly wasn't the real, wasn't really part of Al-Qaeda, right? It was just a local group and they just took on the name AQIM for some sort of branding exercise and it didn't really have anything to do with Al-Qaeda. Well, you have plenty of primary source material that says that's wrong. I'm still eagerly waiting for some of the people who got it wrong to update their analysis. Have you seen that, Bill? No. And, you know, look, and they seem to do this for every group, right? Uh, right. Uh, so disconnect the dots paradigm, exactly. right? Exactly. Shabab's not part of Al-Qaeda, even though it swore allegiance to it. And AQAP really is just some breakaway fact. You know, it, it, it's it's the same old story. You know, I think if Al-Qaeda is telling us AQIM is part of it and AQM is telling us that it is part of Al-Qaeda, maybe we should believe them. So now one of the big things, one of the big differences here between this coup and the aftermath and what that's going to mean for the jihadi scene and the first time around 2012 is in 2012, we didn't have ISIS in the region. We didn't have an ISIS breakaway faction or group that was competing with Al-Qaeda at the time. We do now. Uh, we know that in 2015, uh, Abu Walid al-Sarawi uh, pledged allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and ISIS, and that was the first sort of new ISIS group in the region. Now, it was over a year and a half later. I think it was 17 months later, if I recall this correctly. I think, Caleb, you and I wrote this up at the time. Yep. It's about 17 months later, right? It took a while for, for ISIS to officially recognize Sarawi's Pledge of Allegiance or, or Baya, Oath of Allegiance. Um, but they did eventually. And he's now, he's described in a recent Inspector General's report uh, from the, the uh, Inspector General's Office of the Defense Department as the Deputy Emir of ISIS in the Greater Sahara, which is sort of the way they... they discuss this or phrase this. Um, and he's been involved in the infighting with Al-Qaeda, uh, with his former br brothers or comrades in Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb and their, their regional, uh, sub-regional branch, I would call it, the Group for the Support of Islam and Muslims, uh, often referred to by an acronym of its name, JNIM, which I know, Caleb, you've written a ton about. And the two sides have been fighting. Now, the, the U.S. military has said at times that the two sides had an accommodation or some sort of cooperation. But that really sort of came to an end earlier this year. Sort of this coexistence between the two came to an end earlier this year. This is what the U.S. military says. When Sarawi issued a statement that was distributed on social media, I think in April, basically demanding blood money from al-Qaeda, saying that they had killed some uh, ISIS guys or something along those lines that happened. Uh, and let me make sure I get this right. So Sarawi says, yeah, so on April 10th, yes, he demanded blood money from for the killing of two, this is according to Inspector General's report for the Defense Department, the killing of two ISIS guys in the Greater Sahara, and um, basically also wanted some prisoners released. Al-Qaeda, or JNIM, the Group for the Support of Islam Muslims, basically told them to go pound sand. And so this led to a bunch of infighting in late April, and then sort of the two sides have been uh, at odds, and bloody odds ever since then. Now, Caleb, you've done a lot of work on this, um, on the sort of the 
relationship between Al-Qaeda and ISIS and how it's evolved in the time in the region. I thought maybe you could provide listeners with a little bit of an overview of this. I know you had a great piece in the CTC Sentinel um, on this that you co-authored, and you've had a bunch of stuff at the Long War Journal you've done for us through the years. And why don't you give a little bit of an overview? First of all, here's the first question for you. Did they, in fact, have an accommodation between Al-Qaeda and ISIS? Did the two sides collude, uh, have some sort of, you know, sort of non-aggression pact, at least for a time, or or not? What do you think? Yeah, so right before we get into that, I just want to say something about the DODIG report. They actually used the wrong photo uh, for Sahrawi. That was Abdul Hakim Sahrawi, not Abu Walid. Abu right. Walid is the leader, Abdul Hakim al-Safrawi. It's kind of confusing, but he's a deputy, so they used the wrong photo. So yeah, all right. of this was taking place with Abdul Hakim, the deputy emir, who kind of did all these, you know, so that's very what I wanted, wanted to ask. You. That's exactly what I was going to ask you because Sarawi was the guy that I initially we initially profiled as the new emir, and I was reading yeah. the ID report, and I was like, "What that I described no, they, as a deputy emir didn't make any sense to me. Maybe yeah, maybe something. I, yeah, maybe I missed something in recent weeks, but I guess yeah. So that makes sense. All right, so good. So yeah, you clear that up for me. So yeah, so on the the cooperation though, definitely like JNIM and ISGS. Um, I don't know if it was ever a formal agreement. Uh, but my co-author and I hitting Nasabia at uh, CTC Sentinel, um, you know, even looking at open source, you know, the UN has noted several times that there were liaison officials between the groups that kind of, you know, facilitated and, you know, coordinated this relationship in like in the Mali, Burkina, Niger borderlands. Um, so they noted, I think, three or four individuals in Gao region, the Manaka region of northern Mali, in the Gorma region, which kind of spans Mali and Burkina Faso, and in central Mali, where these figures from both JNIM and ISGS would meet, you know, periodically and actually hash things out or, you know, facilitate, you know, coordinated actions or stuff like that. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is that even senior, you know, AQIM officials acknowledge this. Um, Yahya Abu al-Hammam, who used to be the, you know, leader of, of AQIM Sahara Emirate, who became a deputy emir of JNIM, confirmed in 2016 that, you know, even after Abu Awid and his group kind of split from, from the AQ fold in the Sahel, they still maintained communication with them. They were still very open to talking with them and working with them. Um, and I think that, you know, really manifested itself uh, in these liaison, you know, officials and efforts. And, you know, we could see from both open source and our Hini and I's local sources on the ground that, you know, not only did they coordinate through these liaisons, but they also like they also did coordinated actions. There was joint raids, they did, you know, coordinated campaigns together in, in both Mali and Burkina Faso where wherein one group would claim an attack one day and then the next day or the day after that when the Mali, like Mali and or Burkina Bay officials would come into, you know, that locale. The other group would claim an attack on those those groups or those those individuals. So it's it's interesting if like they they coordinated their campaigns and actions while also having these liaisons. But people want to say that like that never happened or they never were cooperating or coordinating. But that's that's not true. Um, no, it's sort of, and, a certain amount of that makes sense, right? I mean, they know each yeah. other. I mean, I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, you have local Sarawi, ties. When, he def- when Sarawi defects, I mean, he was previously part of the Al Qaeda pantheon. Of, uh, you know. Uh, sort of alphabet soup of groups in the region. Uh, he worked with other Al Qaeda comrades, so he, this is, you know, in some case, some ways, this is sort of his own longtime brethren he's working with. Uh, also, his longtime brethren that he betrayed. Um, so, so this goes on. How long do you think this went on? So, so basically, Sarawi announces his defection to ISIS in 2015. ISIS officially accepts it in 2016, fall of 2016. Um, what sort of period are we looking at where there's some sort of a combination or, or is it broken up into different periods uh, between so it, 2016 and earlier this year, let's say? So I would say 
So following the initial announcement of Sahrawi's you know, defection from Al-Qaeda, there were initial reports that he fought with Belmokhtar's group at the time. Um, there were some initial clashes at that period, um, but following that, they kind of reconciled. I think I pointed you to one, right, where Belmokhtar's group was allegedly even trying to kill him right after the yeah, defection, I think, yeah. right? So they so did. Mukhtar Belmokhtar, yeah. just for our listeners so they know, Mukhtar Belmokhtar is the famous one-eyed uh, Sort of jihadi Al Qaeda leader Billy is one of your favorites. I know that you, uh, you, you, you. How do you go ahead, Bill? Tell tell the listeners about Bum Mukhtar a little bit and how you describe him as a vampire and why, because I guess you know, the context on. He's also a uh, what I like to call a land pirate. I mean, you know, he just had all of the, you know, he may as well have put the patch and the par- uh, on the eye and the and the parrot on his shoulder. You know, guy ran cigarettes and drugs and across the desert while butchering people. Uh, uh, mindlessly throughout his career, but uh, yeah, he he he's just. Although I'd say Rukmini Kalamaki now, the New York Times reporter was covering this in depth. She makes a good point that if you're going to be kidnapped as a Westerner in the region, you'd rather be kidnapped by a Belmokhtar's oh. group than by ISIS because oh, he's going he's going yeah. to try and get something for you. you oh know? yeah, he right. though, he's so. really good at that. I mean, look, you know, pirates are really good at maximizing the uh, the resources that they acquire. So he was the very very. Very adept at that, and he's been reported dead so many times. He's one of the guys, and we still we think he's dead, right, Tom? But we've really never had full confirmation. Yeah, of I mean, that, if we I recall. think he is, but it's a little murky, you know. Yeah. I mean, look, as you say, what, what do you say, Bill? That these guys are like vampires, unless you know we you got to drive the, the shut off, off the head, head, drive a stake through the heart, and then then we know he's dead, right? Yeah, uh, you got to expose him to sunlight too, Tom. Right, all right. So there were, there were some reporting or indications Bill Mukhtar and his gang went after Sarawi right after the. He defected uh, Caleb. That was back in 2015. Bring us yeah. up to that. To bring us up to date now. Then from 2015 to early 2020, before we get to the the clashes in the spring of this year between Al Qaeda and ISIS in the region, talk to us a little bit about what happens, what transpires then between 20 circa 2015, 2016, all the way up to the spring of this year. Yeah. So following those initial clashes, they actually definitely worked with each other until around July 2019. July 2019 is when these hostilities kind of came to the fore. Um, so with a lot of these, they, they had a lot of local issues that kind of, you know, came to the forefront of these groups, especially within Katiba Messina in central Mali, that's JNIM's, you know, central Malian contingent. Um, they had a lot of issues with like their local fighters compared to the non-local and by non-local, I mean, they weren't native to central Mali. Um, and they kind of had differences on how to tax or give access to different Fulani or other Muslim groups, these these pasture lands, they had issues over zakat, you know, these almsgiving, they had issues over all of this. Um, that really manifested itself in ways that the Islamic State was able to kind of poach members from. So since 2017, Katiba Messina has been kind of, you know, hemorrhaging fighters to the Islamic State based on all of these grievances that the Islamic State was able to capitalize on. Um, and that kind of spread to other areas in Mali, and then eventually by July 2019, uh, you know, these disagreements and arguments kind of became violent. Um, and since then, there's been a few meetings where both JNIM and ISGS has met um, in northern Mali um, to try to, you know, calm these hostilities. Um, the UN has documented two. Uh, Henny and I have documented a third meeting um, where they tried to reconcile their differences before full-on war. Um, but obviously, that uh, didn't happen. Um and then when you mix in with, you know, other disagreements based on, you know, the overall Islamic State ideology, um, ISGS, Abdul Hakim Safrawi, the, the aforementioned deputy of ISGS, he was very upset with JNIM, you know, 
having disagreements with Bambra or Dogon or, you know, other ethnic militias in central Maui. He was also mad at JNIM for, you know, wanting to negotiate with the Mauian government. Um, and then as, you know, the Islamic State kind of restructured their forces in 2019, in March 2019, um, it's very likely that that caused, and what I mean by that is ISGS became formally part of the Islamic State's West African province, or ISWAP. Um, prior to that, ISGS was operating as its own kind of pseudo branch or pseudo, you know, province of the Islamic State, but never an official one. By March 2019, they became under the actual ISWAP uh, brand, um, and since then, they've kind of taken a more hostile approach to JNIM. So, Hindi and I believe that following the actual restructuring, this likely caused ISGS to become more formally under the command of the Islamic State, um, which caused them to take a more hostile, you know, footing with JNIM. So mixed in with the local issues and, you know, the global jihadi rivalry, um, all this kind of, you know, compounded itself into open warfare by early 2020. Um, and this is when things get super bloody and it started out in the Gorma region, which is the, the Malian, Burkina Bay and Nigerian border regions uh, in border villages. You know, they started fighting each other there. That spread to central Mali, and then from central Mali, it spread to northern Mali, and then from there, it spread to central and eastern Burkina. Um, and now it's, 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 you know, it's spreading towards, you know, Benin, Togo, Ghana, Ivory Coast, um, as these groups also spread on their own. Um, so it's a very dangerous cocktail we're in here. So let's talk about the dispute over negotiating with the Malian government. Uh, you know, ISIS rejects this, Al-Qaeda accepts it. Um, you know, this is an issue where ISIS, I believe, criticized the Al-Qaeda position on this in an issue of Anaba, the weekly newsletter, if I'm recalling correctly, one of the issues we looked at a while yep. back. Um, this is something ISIS goes after Al-Qaeda on this. Al-Qaeda, this is not outside the Al-Qaeda wheelhouse. So this is not outside the Al-Qaeda program at all or the Mahaj methodology. Um, this, is, this is an interesting dispute between the two because Al-Qaeda, as you can see in the Bin Laden files, uh, Al-Qaeda senior leadership fully accepted a truce uh, between AQAM and the Mauritanian government. Um, basically, that deal said that um, the Mauritanian uh, government was going to stay away from raids against Al-Qaeda guys in, inside the country, allow them the space to proselytize, and in turn, AQAM wasn't going to attack uh, the government of Mauritania. You can see other subsequent uh, subsequent uh, corroborating information around that regard that took place. That was something that was deemed completely kosher in Al-Qaeda circles to do, to go forward with that sort of negotiations. Um, you can see the uh, Al-Qaeda didn't object to the Taliban negotiating the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, Al-Qaeda is willing to use political jihad in a sense, or is, we, is willing to advance its political jihad in ways that ISIS isn't, at least formally or at least uh, publicly. And ISIS rejects this and still rejects this. Um, so talk a little bit about, um, you know, do you think that's still an issue that's ongoing for ISIS? Do you think they're going to keep, you know, going after Al-Qaeda on this? Now, part of the Al-Qaeda position on this was they said, we'll negotiate with the government in Mali uh, after the French leave, after international forces leave. So they wanted basically the, the main impediment, one of the main things keeping them from forming their Islamic Emirate in the region to, to get out. And then they were willing to negotiate with the government of Mali. ISIS sort of, you know, which is a sophisticated play politically. I mean, it's the same thing the Taliban did, right? Basically, you say we'll have uh, intra-Afghan talks, which are sort of loosely include the U.S., the Afghan government, but only after the U.S. can agrees to get out and NATO agrees to get out of Afghanistan. You think ISIS is still going to keep agitating on this and keep going after Al Qaeda on this? And what do you? What's the? What as far as you know, Caleb, are the specific? Uh, 
beyond sort of the general rhetoric of ISIS saying, oh, you're, you're negotiating with the infidels and that sort of thing, what's the general critique that ISIS has of this? Yeah, so especially in the context of central Mali, this is kind of where Abdul Hakim was very, you know, harsh on JNIM. He really did not like that JNIM was willing to, you know, play this role as community defender among, you know, the Fulani or Dogon against, you know, Dozo militias or Bambara militias. Um, you know, and, and we're seeing this. There's actually a report just, you know, the other day in Reuters talking about how Al Qaeda has formed, you know, these these local community shuras or they're 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 talking with local communities to build these networks. Uh, and that's one thing that ISGS has really, really hampered on JNIM about is is their 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 willingness to, you know, kind of work with these militias who've been accused of, you know, murdering Muslims in, in central Mali. Well JNIM sees it as a way to, you know, get around that by working with them or, or building these agreements with them. Um, and we, we see that on a wider scale with JNIM of wanting to negotiate with, you know, the, you know, the Malian government. Now, I don't know how, you know, sincere JNIM was about their willingness to negotiate with Malian government, because after they made that announcement, they attacked like three or four major Malian military bases in central and northern Mali. So, well, the Taliban's done the yeah. same thing, right? I mean, <laughs> they're, 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 the, the Taliban doesn't even say they're going to negotiate with the Afghan government, which is one of Bill's fair points. They just say they're going to have inter-Afghan talks as they're launching suicide attacks. So yeah. it's the same thing. It's literally the same thing. Wait a second. I thought we weren't talking Afghanistan. I can't, episode. you know, we can't get away from it. You know, it's, okay. you know, I mean, one of the funny things about all this, not funny, but one of the things that should be observed here is that, you know, there's no doubt that what the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are doing in Afghanistan influences the thinking of Shabaab in Somalia and also Al-Qaeda in West Africa. I mean, they're, they're all trying to establish these Islamic emirates. Um, you know, that's that's the big disconnect the dots methodology we see in counterterrorism circles is to pretend like they don't, they're all, they all are not fighting for the same sort of general goal, but even though they say they are over and over again, and even though you can see in the internal correspondence that they're, they reference that uh, and they talk about that. Um, so, so th these are this. What you're saying, Caleb, is this is going to be an ongoing dispute? Yeah, it's, it's going to keep going. It's very ongoing. Yeah. It's still going. I mean, Al Qaeda, JNIM has made a very made it very much clear that that's how they see going forward: is working and communicating and forming these local ties across Mali, um, and that includes working with you know people who may have massacred Muslims. Uh, to them, you know, they do see it as unforgivable, but they're willing to kind of move past it for the greater good. What they see as building this you know, popular support to eventually, you know, reestablish their emirate there. Um, and they can't do that without local support. And I think they know that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the, the things, too, we talk a little bit about in terms of defining Al-Qaeda and its goals. And, and this is sort of a general observation. But, um, of course, Al-Qaeda is always looking to embed itself deeply in the local milieu to sort of, you know, basically become part of the local scene. Um, this is their whole game plan. Some have tried to fall, draw this false dichotomy between the local jihad and global jihad, basically try and say you're either or. Uh, we've rejected, Bill, you and I have rejected that for, I don't even know, more than a decade. You know, yeah. it's just a, it's such a, it is a false dichotomy. It's a false either or. It doesn't make any sense. It make any sense with Shabab. It doesn't make any sense with Al-Qaeda in West Africa. You know, they, they basically, it's all part of one package. Global jihad to them doesn't mean just attacking the U.S. or attacking the West, which is what you see sometimes some people refer to it as. That's not what they mean by that. Global jihad means that um, a jihad for a Muslim in one country, let's say Mali, is incumbent upon them just as much in Mali for all Muslims, just as it is in Afghanistan or Syria or Yemen or anywhere else. That basically it's one Ummah from their perspective, from the jihadist perspective. And jihad, once jihad becomes obligatory in one part of the Ummah, it's obligatory all throughout the Ummah. Um, that's sort of the global jihad mantra or thinking. It doesn't mean they're just going after you know the U.S. or the West. In fact, most of the resources are not devoted to going after the U.S. or the West. Um, you know, as we've, we've emphasized this 
many, many times, only a small portion of what they do, even for Al-Qaeda pre-9-11, only a part of what it did was go after the US, which people don't get. Um, so let's talk a little bit about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the rivalry. How many how many people do you think, how many casualties have they, they each suffered on, from this infighting, you think, Caleb? What's a rough ballpark? And obviously you're not gonna, you're not going to have the martyrdom list from these groups. You're not going to know specifically. But what, what do you think is the actual sort of, uh, wh- where do you put it? How severe do you put the numbers at? High, yeah, it's, high? it's definitely uh, low hundreds. Um, I think, you know, uh, I'm trying to pull up the numbers here. Um, ACLED, the Armed Conflict Location Event Data Project, um, they actually estimated around 300 were killed since the beginning of the total, clashes. Total from both sides? Yes, from both sides. Um, and I think it should be noted that the International Crisis Group noted in April 2020 alone that fighting in one of like Burkina's provinces, Sum, left at least 100 jihadis dead on both sides. Yeah, so in one one. month alone, they lost 100. Um, okay. So this is, I mean, these are large-scale attacks. I mean, there's reports of, you know, one offensive that JNIM did on the ISGS where, you know, 40 vehicles were in this convoy going to attack the Islamic State. Um, in that same attack, the Islamic State, you know, they, they undertook one or two suicide bombings against JNIM to, to prevent that, that attack, but it still happened. Um, you know, and it's, it, you know, we could see this coming from central Maui all the way down to eastern Burkina, where JNIM, JNIM has absolutely routed the Islamic State on many occasions. Now, that's not to say the Islamic State hasn't had their victories. They have. They have. There's been a few battles where the Islamic State has won, um, but it's mainly been JNIM just completely routing the ISGS and, and chasing them from central Mali to eastern Burkina. Um, and in fact, just uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, it was reported that ISGS isn't even in the Gorma region anymore. They were completely removed from that region by JNIM. Wow. So, yeah, Caleb, you, you anticipated my question there. I was kind of going to ask you, who do you think has the upper hand in this fight? I realize it's spread out over a large area here, but would you would, would it be accurate to say that the that Al-Qaeda or JNIM, JNIM has the upper hand here, too soon to tell? Or, or what, As of right it? now, JNIM yeah. definitely has the upper hand. Okay. Um, it's just like based on where they've, they've been able to, to push ISGS to. Um, but you know that could change. ISGS Absolutely. could have more fortunes in the future. They could, you know, mount a successful counterattack somewhere. But as of right now, JNIM definitely has the upper hand. And who, who's a strategy here? It's political and military strategy. Who do you think is a more effective strategy? Is it the Islamic State, which doesn't like to be inclusive, is not thinking about doing things like negotiating with governments, or is it JNIM and, and AQIM that seems to have be more flexible in how it wages its job? Well, I guess it depends on, you know, w- what metrics you're looking at here. If you're looking at long-term success, JNIM definitely, uh, you know, we talked about earlier, but, you know, they're, they, the way they see themselves in the community is, is so, you know, insidious. You know, they, they build themselves within the local communities. So long-term, JNIM for sure. But if your goals are to, you know, conduct these large-scale attacks, you know, promote absolute terror, you know, go after, you know, aid workers, stuff like that in the Islamic State, who's, you know, in the past, you know, I think the end of 2019, early early 2020, they did, you know, some of the largest attacks in Niger, like some yeah. of the largest recorded attacks in yeah. Niger. So if your goal is that, uh, I would say the Islamic State, whereas JNIM, you know, they still do large scale assaults, but, you know, they haven't had anything that large in, in, in at least a year or two. Um, but Long-term wise, JNIM is definitely playing the long game here, whereas ISGS is definitely, you know, going along with the the wider Islamic State modus operandi of, you know, we're here now. So, yeah. by the way, as we're as we're talking about the leadership of these groups and their strategies and everything, we talked about 
Abdul Malik Drakdel was killed in June by a French-led uh, by the France in a, a U.S.-assisted operation. It's interesting that took place June 3rd, I believe. We're recording this September 4th, and there still has not been an announced successor to Drakdel for AQAM. Which usually there's a there's a mourning period of several weeks the jihadis use, or they wait in order to before they in the Al Qaeda land anyway before they announce a new successor. And we still don't have an official anyway acknowledgement of who the new successor is for AQAM. Uh, which I think is an interesting observation after all this time. It means they're not in a rush to basically put out of who their successor is. Um, maybe some disagreements internally too, uh, you know, about about that. Who knows? We don't really have any uh, sort of inside knowledge about what's going on there. But, it, you know, they have several guys that they could choose to do that long term going forward. Um, a dark horse candidate, and I don't even think he's that dark of a horse candidate. I think Yusuf Anabi is probably the, the number one candidate to replace Drickdell. But there are other dark horse candidates and again, I don't think he's that much of a dark hair scanner, but let's talk about Iad Ghali a little bit, who's the head of JNIM. Um, he's a guy I could see in some circumstances being the head of AQIM. Um, you know, we've heard from our sources, Caleb, that um, Iad Ghali is actually part of Al-Qaeda's senior management team. He actually reports on Ashura uh, up the chain to Ayman al-Zawahiri. This again busts the whole myth about the idea of local versus global and that this guy's just a Toreg who's interested in local issues, but in fact, he's got he's part of the senior management team in, 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 in framing things globally and, and setting policy. Um, so he's, he's a guy who's still very much in the game. I could see him taking over AQIM. How do you think he's positioning himself long run here for, for, for building an emirate in West Africa? Like how do, how do you think he's thinking about ISIS and going after them and, and all this type of stuff? Cause he's really a guy, I, when I look at him, I think he's got to think that ISIS is basically sort of upsetting the apple cart and sort of what they want to do. Right. Uh, yeah. He can't be too happy about the ongoing infighting. Yeah, uh, he's definitely upset about it. And I think, you know, a large part of JNIM's response is based on Iedagali's, you know, leadership. Um, local journalists in Mali actually have stated that it was Iedagali who likely called a, you know, a, a Shura meeting with Drukdel prior to that meeting. Um, and, you know, Henny and I, my co-author, believe that this was likely to discuss, you know, the infighting with with ISGS. Um but other than that, I, I really think that Yedagali is kind of, you know, going along the, the longstanding, you know, role and activities, you know, AQIM and then now JNIM has done for years of, you know, you do attacks against the Mali and Burkina Bay and Nigerian governments, but also you're working with the locals in general. Um, and I think he's, you know, especially in recent months, placing more emphasis on, you know, these community engagement. You know, we talked about central Mali, but, you know, just, uh, yesterday, the day before, I think it was yesterday, Al Qaeda's Al Thabat news agency, which you know kind of works as you know similar to the Islamic State's Amak, um, released a statement. No, no, it's independent, Caleb. No, you know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's independent, independent it's media. Not, sorry, it's not really Al Qaeda, right? Yeah, Fake right, news. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, we need to be. But, we need to figure out a, a a creative way to disconnect the dots. There, we'll we'll come up yeah. with it. Yeah, anyway, exactly. they released a statement saying that a Sharia court by JNIM actually implemented hadood punishments um, against uh, you know this this drunkard in, in Timbuktu region. Um, this is the first time that JNIM has done hadood punishments uh, or, or AQIM for that matter. Advertised they, them anyway. Yeah, they've, they've done way. a few. Yeah. yeah, they've never been super open about it like this, like they've been now. And well, AQIM definitely advertised the hadood back. Um, Back 2012, in 2012, 2012 but yeah, following that, yeah, following that, they you know they kind of learned their lesson and they've kind of been you know more secret about it. Not to say they haven't done it because they have. They just you know they they don't prefer to advertise it. Um, but this goes along with you know kind of new messaging that JNIM is doing because um, it was last month 
that uh, the same news agency, Alphabot, released another statement um, from JNIM saying that the, the Wali, or the governor of Timbuktu region, who is um, uh, Abdurrahman Alibi, or you know his name is... Uh, uh, Forgetting his name, Talha. Uh, he's you know Talha Libby or Talha Azawadi or Talha uh, Amartani. Yeah. yeah. So he and he goes by a lot of names, but he is he's the Wawi of Timbuktu, and he issued a you know a decree of a local against the local you know tribe there who was you know caught stealing things. You know he was weighing in on you know a tribal disagreement here, offering you know his judgment on who's responsible and what should what should happen to those individuals. So you have community engagement across Central Mali up to Northern Mali. You you know, and it's a long-term strategy here that we talked about of not only are they doing these attacks to weaken the Malian state, but they're also still offering their own, you know, shadow government behind the scenes. Like they don't advertise it as much as other Al-Qaeda groups. And, you know, I think some people like to think that, you know, JNIM doesn't have, you know, this much influence or exerts that much control across the Sahel. But in various parts, you know, some rural parts of northern Mali and then some parts of eastern and central Burkina, they're very much exerting their influence and, and you know, offering their Sharia laws. And I think this is part of, you know, Ida Gawi's long, long game strategy here of, of making sure that they're playing the right cards to eventually bring back that emirate. Um, and I do want to give you know a shout out to what we said earlier about Ida Gali and you know the larger Al Qaeda network. Um, in Aaron Zellin's book, he talks about you know he explicitly talks about Antwerp Sharia in Tunisia, but he notes that not only was Antwerp Sharia's leadership getting you know kind of leadership and guidance from Al Qaeda leaders elsewhere, and you know you've noted that for for a long time as well. That actually, I was I stood yeah. alone, Caleb, uh, for a long time in saying on Sharia Tunisia and Libya were actually fair. Al Qaeda groups. But yeah. where I was going with yeah. this is that yeah, yeah. he even noted he even noted I was actually that, criticized in 2012, 2013 for getting that right. But whatever, you know. So yeah, I mean, I do, we're, we're gonna have Aaron Zellin on our book. Yeah. Aaron, we're gonna have him talk about his book, which is excellent. We're gonna have him on uh, as a. As Different note at some point, yes. We're, but, we're gonna talk about I mean, he did about, note that yeah. Iyadagawi was also communicating with the leadership of Ansar Sharia of how to go about, you know, conducting their 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 activities, both clandestine and openly. And, yeah. you know, we saw that with Ansar Dean, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, this, this guy in, in Mali who people want to think that, you know, is this local leader or he was only, you know, thrown into jihad through circumstance. You know, he's, I mean, he's, he's, he's no, very yeah. much in the system here and he's very much within yeah, by the, way, the global he, when network. He, when, he, when he formed, when they announced the formation of JNIM in 2017, was it 2018? Uh, whatever it was. 2017. Yeah, 2017, so I thought. Uh, and he, he, he um, rehearsed the the Al Qaeda Baya. What was the Baya? It was to Drukdel and through Drukdel to Ayman Zawahiri and through Zawahiri to Hubel. You know, you know, we can't get away from it. Who? Oh, it possibly. Well, that was what 2015. It would be no 2017. Two, it was, yeah, it would the, be the, more the, the, the Baya was from Taliban's Amir. Yeah, yeah. Abu Akhanzada, the Amir of the Taliban, this, the Amir of the Faithful. Yeah. They were very uh, so, clear about that too. Yeah, making sure yeah. that everyone knew that their Baya extends to the Taliban. Right. Uh, very explicit about that. I wrote that up at the time. I did. A, I worked on a translation of what he actually said. I had some people check it to make sure I got it exactly right because the phrasing was very important. Um, and, you know, they're very explicit about that. And, of course, we haven't seen any break in that to this day. We haven't seen any any hint from AQAM or JNIM that they're worried about the Taliban breaking with Al-Qaeda or anything like that, which Bill and I have argued that if you're going to sell us on a real break between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, 
There are a couple of ways to do it, um, several ways to do it. And one of the issues is that Akunzada, the head of the Taliban, has to formally renounce Ayman al-Zawahiri's bayah or oath allegiance to him. Why? Because that carries a lot of significance, religious significance and theological significance to the jihadis. That would be something that would cause problems for al-Qaeda globally. We don't, I mean, it's not necessarily insurmountable, but it would be definitely problematic for al-Qaeda globally to say, you know, we recognize the emir of the Taliban as the, as the emir of the faithful and the guy who's sort of the proto-caliph and can be the caliph one day. Um, and of course, we haven't seen that yet at all. We're more than six months after the deal between the U.S. and the Taliban. We haven't seen a hint of that. Not a hint. Um, and yet this is why this, this applies. You're talking about Iagali and, and, and you know, some people frame, framing him as being just a local actor. And yet here he is, you know, talking about things and talking about the world and expressing his vision of the world in Al-Qaeda terms right down to how the bayah is issued to Al-Qaeda. Yeah. I mean, even after the death of Drukdel, JNIM has not, they've not released a statement, you know, renouncing that. They've not re released a statement renouncing their, their bayah to Zwahri or the Taliban. So it's business as usual for them on the bayah side as well. So, yeah. So and again, it go, this all speaks to the, the this false dichotomy between the local and global issues here on all this stuff, which we've been combating for a long time. Um, so let's talk a little bit. You, you, you sort of tease this a little bit or start talking about the proto-emirates in the, in the region, Kale. Let's talk a little bit about Dawa, right? Because this is something that um, you mentioned Aaron Zellin's book. He does a great job of documenting the Dawa efforts of Al-Qaeda and uh, through Ansar Sharia and others in North Africa. Uh, following the Arab uprisings, uh, something to be Garden Scene Ross, our colleague who was on an earlier episode of the of the podcast, has done a lot of great work on. Um, and you know, this is one of those things that people don't think of uh, when they think of Al Qaeda. They don't think of proselytization. They don't think in terms of charity work and trying to earn recruits and this type of thing. But talk a little bit about about what you think, um, Jan, what JNIM's Dawa efforts and AQIM's Dawa efforts look like in West Africa right now. You mentioned a little bit of it, but like, what, how many schools do you think they're running, or how many mosques do you think they're running, and that sort of thing. So I can't tell you like exact numbers or even an estimate. No, just but, give us a ball, give us a ballpark. Like, if you but see they examples, definitely, that sort of thing. Yeah. They definitely like in in Eastern Burkina Faso for sure, where you know their efforts have you know shut down hundreds of schools. You know, it's very clear that they are running villages and other other areas of that of that region. So it's very clear that they are running schools there. They're running services um, at some parts in you know central Burkina as well as you know some rural parts of central Mali, where they are exerting their influence over the community. Um, you know, and, and the Dawa efforts extend beyond services. I mean, this is also part of those community meetings with, you know, the local militias. That's also part of their Dawa is, is they want to make sure that their ideology, that their effort is being submitted to the locals that way as well as presenting themselves as, you know, this rational actor, who this, this actor that, you know, can not only defend you, but perform government duties as well. Um, and that's extending in a lot of areas across the Sahel. Um, and I, I think the main part is Eastern Burkina. Um, there was, you know, several reports a few months ago that, you know, most of Eastern Burkina is is under jihadist influence. Now, those reports also included the Islamic State uh, influence as well. Um, but following clashes uh, there, I'm not sure what the dynamic is now, but it's very clear that JNIM uh, still has a lot, a lot of influence in Eastern Burkina. And that is where a lot of their efforts are focused now on Dawa and controlling communities and, and stuff like that. Um, and that's mainly related to the lack of government, you know, structure there. Um, but that could change elsewhere across the Sahel as well, as well as, you know, as government responses, you know, either continue to be heavy handed and harsh, which which bring people into JNIM's fold or alongside their their you know ideology. Um, or if government forces pull out of somewhere, the jihadis are always there to 
fill that void um, afterwards. And you know, as those you know either transgressions or pullouts continue across the hell, probably see more of JNIM and the Islamic State, for that matter, um, making sure that their Dawa efforts are 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 included in those areas. Um, and I, I, I how find much, in, that, in that regard, how much do you think or how much is the ISIS message right now in terms of, you know, one of the things we've seen globally is ISIS has accused Al-Qaeda of delaying the implementation of Sharia and the Hudud punishments. It's something that was a constant theme from 2014 on, you know, Abu Muhammad al-Anani, uh, uh, the spokesman for ISIS, went after Zawahiri and Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda in Yemen, AQAP and other groups and said, basically, you're, you're not really after Islamic governance because you're delaying the implementation of Sharia. Um, this has been a big marketing message. One of the ways ISIS has tried to cut into Al Qaeda's market shares by saying, "Hey, you know, you keep telling everybody you're about Islamic governance, but you're not really doing it. We're going to do it. And we're going to do it now. Uh, so come follow us and do this." How much is how much in terms of the local scene um, would you say that that's the uh, ISGS sort of message against Al Qaeda in terms of recruiting? How much is that as a, for the for within the ideological competition? How much do you think that matters? That definitely plays into the competition a lot. Um, in fact, um, Abdul Hakim had a lot of lectures about their school implementation of, of Hadood or Sharia law, um, and that actually forced JNIM to respond to those accusations in a series of booklets earlier this year, penned by a Mauritanian AQIM official who basically said that you know we're following the prophetic manhaj, you know we're we're basically following you know the slower calculus here based on Al Qaeda's modus operandi you know we are implementing sharia we are working towards you know building this this state but you know we're taking a slower approach and then they also released another booklet um, based around you know this uh, story of the Hassan Muawiyah treaty in early days of Islam but they use mm -hmm. that as an analogy to basically state that you know even though we have our differences you know we could eventually work together we could come together um, so not only were they trying to you know snap back at the Islamic State for making, um, basically lambasting them for, you know, not implementing Sharia, but they also mentioned, uh, you know, working together again, which, you know, gives more credence to the evidence of that. Um, but, you know, the slow implementation that JNIM has done has definitely led, you know, some fighters of JNIM to defect the Islamic State. Um, and that's, I think, more so in central Mali. Um, and that's where a lot of defections kind of took place between the groups. Um, a lot of this kind of was focused on Katiba Messina and the Fulanis or, you know, other local Muslim groups of, of central Mali, um, that they were kind of upset with how Al-Qaeda is kind of operating, um, especially after, you know, ethnic militias, you know, do their their massacres across central Mali, which kind of affect these local communities that many of these fighters are part of. You know, they wanted more vengeance. They wanted more revenge now. They wanted to take back, you know, what they saw as theirs, whereas Al-Qaeda was kind of, you know, more, you know, tactful about it. They they wanted a, you know, strategic approach to this, whereas the Islamic State was marketing themselves as, you know, this revenge-based organization that we can get you that now. If you join us, that, you know, we are, we are open to, you know, fighting back with them. We are open to, you know, committing massacres against the, the group that did this, you know, and we saw this uh, in, in northern Mali, especially in the, in the Manaka uh, region uh, near near the Nigerian border, wherein you know Tuareg and Dawasak communities were going after each other, uh, based around you know community community issues. But you know both Al Qaeda and the Islamic State had differing approaches on this. Whereas the Al Qaeda didn't really want to, you know, have this revenge-based operation or go after you know the groups responsible. It was the Islamic State who came in and started doing massacres against the people who are doing massacres against the communities of their fighters. So not only are they, you know, marking themselves as, you know, this is us now, join us now for quick retribution is, you know, they're also showing themselves to be, 
you know, results-based, I guess, if that makes sense, is, you know, JNIM slow game, whereas ISGS is results now. So let's uh, talk a little bit, too, about um, how you see um, ISGS sort of fitting into the ISIS global sort of organizational structure and media and that sort of thing. Because, you know, one of the things you hear sometimes is these groups are just sort of, you know, loosely affiliated with the mothership and that, and that sort of, uh, you know, allegation. Um, yeah, but we see, you know, I mean, certainly you still see media from the region regularly pushed through AMOC, which is the ISIS sort of central daily reporting mechanism, which has had some interruptions at times, but still chugging along. Um, you still see it in ANABA, of course, which is a weekly newsletter. You still see it in other messaging. Um, you know, I, I'm obviously we're not privy to all of their private communications and back and forth, but it certainly looks to me like ISGS is humming along as part of the ISIS global uh, would-be caliphate project. Um, you know, and, and certainly there may be things going on behind the scenes we're not aware of. I'm sure there are. Uh, but, you know, it, certainly every hour indication is it's still part connected to the mothership. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that there's, how would you characterize it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially after the March 2019 rebranding of where ISGS formally became part of ISWAP, definitely most all, I would say most of their media since then has been through the Islamic State's central media apparatus. Yeah, I guess I said ISGS, but I meant ISWAP. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah right. um, sure. But, you know, it should be noted that prior to March 2019, you know, they still had, you know, their, their rudimentary and local media apparatus. But even in those local videos, they marketed themselves as the Islamic State. Sure. You know, and this, you know, I think a lot of people get confused with this. Is, you know, these groups can have local media and still be part of the Islamic State. I mean, if you look at, you know, ISWAP in Nigeria, they still have local media. I mean, they... they just a couple months ago, they released a video of an execution of, you know, aid workers, but that didn't go through the actual Islamic State, you know, apparatus that went through their own. Uh, you know, we, we see this in DRC and Mozambique, you know, these groups are part of the Islamic State, but they still have their, their actual media. That's uh, so the same thing with ISGS, but following March 2019, it became more formal and everything since then has been through actual, you know, the apparatus. Now, some people have, you know, kind of speculated about, you know, why it's so sporadic from the Sahel. But I think that's more of the nature of, you know, where they're located and what's happening on the ground. You know, they're probably losing communication or the, you know, the communication is desperate anyway. So to me, not having, you know, significant communication with the Sahel is not an indication that they're not part of the Islamic State. All right. So the other, the other thing is, um, so in terms of you did some interviewing of local sources, you and Henny did for this piece of CTC Sentinel. Have they have they, have you heard anything from what they say about um, the reaction from sort of ISIS headquarters to all this? What I think is interesting about it is that, you know, Abu Baker al-Baghdadi is killed in October of last year. And Bill and I in a previous episode sort of, you know, did some sort of guesswork or some, some assumptions that basically, you know, look, th these rival it's not really guesswork, but it's really just an observation that basically these, these rivalries, this rivalry between ISIS and Al-Qaeda goes way beyond a few personalities now. Maybe back in the days, if you kill Baghdadi, you kill Adnani, uh, you know, and, and a handful of others, maybe early on, maybe you could have, Al-Qaeda could have stopped to sort of this full-blown global rivalry. But you see that it's continued after the deaths of these guys, including Baghdadi last year. It certainly has continued through um, the appointment of the new emir and what he's doing. Have you have you seen anything, Caleb? Any indication from the local sources talking about how ISIS sort of the ISIS mothership is weighed in on all this or no? Other than what we've seen in Anaba and sort of official publications, uh, not to my knowledge. No, this would be more of a question for Henny. Um, uh, we know that you know there's been some indication that the Islamic State, you know, this is from local sources that the Islamic State has sent messaging through Libya or by way of Libya. 
um, especially following all of this. But I, I'm not. I'm not sure to be quite honest. Now, the other thing that's sort of new is that there was some questioning. The France, of course, has been taking the charge and leading all this. You know, they had former colonial interests in the region. They're committed to sort of tapping down the terrorism threat to them, to themselves, on all this, and they have their own sort of interests in the region. Um, and they, the French were starting to waffle on this a little bit over the last year, but they recently, at least in the last couple of months, they've sort of launched a new or announced that they're going to have a new operation known as Task Force to Cuba, which is part of Operation Barkhane. Um, this Operation Barkhane is the main sort of military offensive from the French uh, counterterrorism operation, I should say. And Task Force to Cuba, um, poorly is going to have about 500 personnel involved. Um, they're going to have French troops, Estonian troops, um, and then there are going to be others from several other countries, I think from Czech Republic, Sweden, and Italy. Um, Germany has declined to participate. Uh, the Germans uh, want to be leaders of Europe, but they don't want to take part in this kind of thing, uh, probably, probably due to their own torturous past. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is the French have committed to keep going on, to keep fighting on the region, keep tapping us down. U.S. AFRICOM, uh, of course, has its presence in the region, too. They're, I guess the last thing I saw is that they've not been asked to provide personnel to task force to Cuba. What do you think, the, how sustainable do you think the French presence and French efforts here are um, going going long term? They, they basically face the same sort of conundrum the U.S. faces with this whole idea of endless war. In fact, I was watching a France 24 clip before we came on and one of the French soldiers was saying, you know, some people say we're in this endless conflict and, you know, but we're doing good here taking out so-and-so and these guys and going hut to hut and finding all this, you know, terrorism, terrorist stuff. Um, that's something that, that, you know, the French have to sell the French people on, I guess, to a certain extent, uh, just like the American government does, although the American government doesn't want to be involved in it at all, really, anymore, if you look at the rhetoric and political leadership. How sustainable do you think the French effort is, and what good do you think it's doing now, besides sort of high bio-killing like Drupdel? Yeah, I'm really not too sure about this. I mean, the French have been active in a counterinsurgency operation really since 2013, so you know, and since then, since really 2014, 2015, we've seen a huge, you know, increase in jihadist violence, you know, you know, despite, you know, both Operation Serval and Barkhan, as well as, you know, Manusma and, and other, you know, agencies there. I, I'm really skeptical of what the French can do moving forward. Um, sure, they're taking out high leaders and sure they are disrupting networks some, you know, in some places, but throughout the Sahel, you know, jihadist violence is surging. Um, so I'm really not sure what a new task force can do differently compared to what they've already been trying to do. Um, and I, I think, you know, something should be said for some of the strategies that, you know, Francis had in the past about working with local groups. You know, how much of that, you know, backfired in their face by working with local militias who just turn around and commit, you know, massacres. You know, that just leads people more into, you know, jihadist hands. So I'm not really sure if this task force is really, really going to be the answer to France's problems here, if they're continuing with the status quo of, of what they've already been trying to do. Yeah, you know, Caleb, I, I could not agree with you more. And, you know, I'm just going to make one observation here. I, I you're, you're absolutely correct. And what you're describing here is what Tom and I think have talked about in all of our episodes where we're looking at as – you know, we're the the West is, and anyone fighting the jihadists really are just sort of fighting it on the cheap. It's a, a minimal use of force operation, and as these, as sure we're killing individual leaders, we might you know take. Yeah. Out by the way, I just to clarify one thing: you said their friendship involved in the counterinsurgency. 
not a large scale counterinsurgency right. involving French forces. They basically have been trying to stand up local forces with a smaller right. sort of force to do the counterinsurgency. Yeah. I mean, do, and Tacuba is basically a train and uh, assist sort of mission or train and, and ride along mission. Um, which they're trying to do. So they basically are trying to, as the U.S. has a different in Africa, U.S. Africa yeah. has a different. Somali is a good example. Right. Of this, Small, right. Smaller force that basically stands up local forces to prevent the emirate from being formed, basically. Yeah. And as this is as this is happening, the jihad is blossoming, I think. And to me, the, the, the um, West Africa is probably the... The jihad is exploding, if I may use that term. I mean, but it is. I mean, it's, it's. We're just seeing, as Caleb described, more and more violence. I mean, it, this can't be fought with a limited use of force, by, um, by backing countries that, whose militaries are really only effective at um, either brutalizing their own population or, or overthrowing their own governments. And uh, so, well, you know, well, I would say about that is it, it can be fought that way. I mean, the French have prevented an emirate from reforming in, in oh, West yeah. local allies. It's just you're not going to deliver a victory yeah. or defeat them right. that way. And it's, that, it's, that, that leads to the endless war conundrum, right? right? Is that basically it becomes this vicious cycle, right? Where people don't want to commit more troops to these areas. I certainly don't want to commit more troops no. to these areas. Let me just be clear on that. Uh, you know, but people don't want to commit more troops to to this, these areas, okay, um, but then they don't. But then they they lament the fact or criticize the fact that it's an endless war that keeps on going. Well, that's also a function of the fact that basically the commitment that you have is basically a minimal commitment to try and keep them at bay by working with local forces and carrying out sometimes controversial counterterrorism operations. Sure, absolutely. Um, and then the other option is you just leave all together, which then you could potentially give them their emirates or in- increase the terrorist risk throughout the region and then potentially to Europe or elsewhere. Um, so. Basically, you know, it's a little bit dishonest to criticize endless war when, when this, in my view, when this is basically, this is the low cost model of what containing the jihadis is. In fact, that Inspector General's report we saw come out of the Defense Department um, uses the word contain, which I used in the previous article just recently, which is basically what the strategy is. It's contain and disruption. Contain the Emirates, don't let them form the Emirates, and disrupt specific international terrorist operations. Yeah, that, that's the best you could ask for. It's, it's um, what uh, I like to say is keeping the lid on the problem it's loosely kept on yeah you'll you might get a small tactical victory here or there but what we're seeing on the whole is that the jihadism is just growing throughout the world while this is occurring now what do you think let's let's end on a note here so this is part of what people don't get i think in in doing this the first time around we talked about this is that al-qaeda's goal in the region has always been to form emirates people don't get that you know it's still their goal today it's been their goal all along it's been their goal for more than a decade um, you know, given current events, you know, how close we think that Shabab probably, uh, when it comes to Africa, Shabab is probably closest to, to forming an emirate than any other jihadi group. I mean, this, this obviously some, some guesswork, there's some true guesswork involved here. We don't, there's a lot of variables we don't know. Um, uh, but to us, to outward, from outward appearances, Bill, right? You agree. We think Shabab is basically the one that's closest to forming an emirate. Um, doesn't mean that it's going to happen tomorrow. Just means yeah. that they're in terms of they have the groundwork to basically make that come about. Yeah, they're they're. I think they're well positioned to do so. Um, you know, like I think we've said this before. We, I, I, I think you would agree me, with me on this. They basically are the Taliban of Africa. They're very organized. They're very effective. Um, they're unified. They have minimal resistance from the Islamic State. Yeah, I just, and, I, the only thing I would add, Bill, is they're the Al Qaeda Taliban of Africa. So. <laughs> the, yeah. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> That's so, correct. And they've also recognized Abdul uh, Akhanzad's authority, by the way. Yes, yeah, the, so. they have. So looking at Shabab as a model, how let's use that as for comparison purposes, Caleb. Let's look now at both Al-Qaeda in West Africa, you know, AQIM and JNIM, and then ISIS in West Africa. 
How close do you think they are to Shabab's capabilities? Um, how far behind do you think they are? If they're behind at all, what do you think? I don't think they are to the same scale of Shabab. You know, Shabab does control what twenty five percent of southern Somalia, and they, they that's do what have US Africom says yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, they do. Rural, we don't really know. It's probably oh, it's, it's probably more. Point. If, right. On that point, keep in mind when the U.S. military says something like that, they're giving you the best case scenario. So the yeah. so the, Add a push the factor there, yeah, sure. right. Yeah. The, the rosiest scenario you could come up with is twenty five percent. That likely means it's thirty five percent or more. Right, so. and within that, you know, they do have their own shadow governments where they are, you know, pretending to be the actual government of Somalia. Whereas in the Sahel, you know, they, you know, Al Qaeda does have zones of influence, like I mentioned earlier, about where they are implementing, you know, Dawa or, you know, actual Hadood punishments or Sharia rulings. I don't really see them setting up an actual shadow government uh, anytime soon. Um, they're definitely working towards that, obviously in eastern Burkina and some parts of northern Mali. Um, but I don't think they're they're in the same, you know, stance as Somalia, where they're able to openly do so. Um, and I think that what they're working on right now is they are doing, you know, governance projects behind the scenes where they're not advertising what they're doing behind the scenes. And I think that plays a large part of this is like, we don't know what they're actually doing in terms of their Dawa or Sharia rulings because they don't advertise it. We only get snippets of information. So, you know, we know they're doing it. We don't know the extent of what they're doing it, but I think that, you know, this is definitely what they're working towards, um, but not they're not at Shabab's level just quite yet. And in and, all fairness to these groups, that Shabab has a what probably a decade or two jump start, a head start on them. So they're working towards it, and I think it's all the more reason why this is should sort of thing should be tamped down now. If not, you're gonna in, in a decade from now or so, you may have Shabab level uh, problems in West Africa. Yeah, in, in terms of. This is the goal for Al Qaeda. Uh, I'll I'll leave one observation. I think we can, then we can wrap up, which is this. Um, you know, again, we tease the Bin Laden files a number of times. If you look at Bin Laden's correspondence with um, Ghazani, the Emir of Shabab, at the time in 2010, um, you can see in that correspondence. First of all, he did not uh, reject Ghazani's appeal for a buyout or a formal sort of merger of Shabab and Al Qaeda, as some reported. That's wrong. Uh, Bin Laden simply said to keep it private, keep it on the down low. He didn't want to basically advertise it. He didn't want to celebrate it for various commercial and other interests. But what's interesting about that correspondence, and we've been writing about this and talking about this for a while, and we'll talk about it in upcoming episodes, is that Bin Laden specifically referred to Shabab as an emirate in Somalia. He already said they've already got an emirate. This is what Bin Laden, Bin Laden's view. And he actually tasked Abu Yahya Libby, uh, a key uh, as his nom de guerre indicates, a key Libyan lieutenant to bin Laden, who uh, was initially part of the Libyan Islamic fighting group and became part of al-Qaeda senior management. He tasked Abu Yahya Libby. He said, look, you know, I don't want Abu Yahya doing these silly administrative stuff and this other stuff. He's got to get on his religious work, his religious rulings when it comes to Shabab's emirate here, because this is an emirate ruling over all these people and they have courts and they have these types of things. We need, we need real grounded research in our version of Sharia in order to, to edify sort of what Shabab is doing here in Somalia. This is Osama bin Laden talking about Al-Qaeda's goals in East Africa. And so anytime you hear anybody say bin Laden just want to attack America or just want to attack Europe, uh, just remember we said this, that I talked about this here. Remember we talked about and all this stuff, because this this is not coming out of nowhere that the jihadis are doing this. This has been, yes, it's not a strategy that they've implemented with perfection. They've had many setbacks, but this has been the goal all along has been to form these emirates. I mean, right from the top. And and Ayman al-Zawahiri's talked about it, and other senior al-Qaeda leaders have talked about Caleb, you want to add something to that? 
Yeah, uh, I think JNIM is is messaging what you're just saying by when they actually release these statements with Thabat or elsewhere about you know their rulings. No, no, Thabat's independent. Sorry, <laughs> sorry again, fake news. I'm fake news, everyone. Right, right, right. Anyway, these statements they're releasing, they're noting that these these rulings are taking place in you know the Islamic Kidal province or the Islamic Timbuktu province or yep. the Islamic Mopti yep. province. And so when you mentioned Awali in, in Central yeah. Mali, that's Wali's governor. That's what it means. Yeah. Like so they're already, yeah. I think they're, they're within the stages of, of resetting up this shadow government and they're, you know, they're just now messaging this to us. Well, I don't know. Do you have anything else to add, Bill, on our way out here for episode 25? No, I don't, but I cannot thank Caleb enough for joining us. Caleb, It's uh, it, we've been working with you for such a long time, and it's been a, a true pleasure to watch you grow as a, as a writer and an analyst, and we wish you all the best in the future. And keep working yeah, and with keep, us. Keep working with us, yeah. And yeah, the other yeah. thing is, Caleb, folks, did this at the last minute. I We recorded this starting around 1.30. I think it was a couple minutes late getting my coffee. And uh, I called Caleb at 11.30 in the morning and said, hey, can you do this episode with us? Because Bill and I are basically tired of talking. Uh, we're sick of hearing ourselves talk. And we don't want to talk about Afghanistan. We want to talk about Mali. And who better to bring on is doing granular research and getting it right better than our own Caleb Weiss. So we're going to have you on a future episode. we got a future episode called Caleb's Truck, which is going to be humorous. It's going to talk about your, your initial foray into uh, the writing on this stuff and how bizarre the world really is. We got That's going to be a fun episode to do. We're gonna do that soon. I got I've got your email, Caleb, outlining it, and we're gonna talk a little bit about. Oh yeah, how that's gonna be a fun one. I that, cannot that's, wait. That's I'm gonna be so little, dying little for that one. A little more entertaining than our usual fare. We're gonna comedic talk about relief, it. very much needed. Oh, yeah, very much needed. Again, as I've always said to our listeners, this is not a podcast to come to for cheery times, for happy talk. Um, this is not not the place you come to for. Uh, you know, feeling better about yourself or the world. We, we deal with dark subject matter. We try and do it in our own sort of humorous way uh, and do the best we can. But that episode will be a little, a little more lighthearted to talk about how you got got involved in all this and some of the nonsense you had to put up with uh, early on. Uh, <laughs> one way I'll, of putting I'll, it. Yeah, I'll, one last note too on the way out. Uh, I'll basically ask you guys again if you can hop on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review, drive other listeners to the show. We greatly appreciate it. we got more stuff coming in the near future. Uh, thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. So please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. By the way, I don't use any of those other than YouTube. And we will see you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>